Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to do, introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Advances in the Treatment of HER2-Positive Breast Cancer. And we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and um, also I just want to comment that this is a, uh, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, general cancer organizations as well as breast cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in this very important topic that I know there's much that you want to learn about, that we have on the call today over 558 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, and we also have, from all different parts of the United States, so from urban areas, rural and suburban areas, and we also have participants from Australia, Canada, India, and the United Kingdom, so um, it's really a bit of a global call as well. Now, today's program is supported by Puma Biotechnology, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this very important program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. And Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana is going to address an overview of HER2-positive breast cancer, diagnostic testing, graded hormone receptors, current standard of care, including targeted therapy. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Grana. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to be giving you a slight overview of these topics that Carolyn mentioned. Breast cancer is no longer one homogeneous disease, but rather more than five or six different diseases with different behavior based on features that are specific to the individual cancer. We've come to learn about estrogen receptor positive cancer, and within that, there's luminal A and luminal B. We've come to learn about HER2 new positive disease that we're going to talk about today. We have triple negative disease, basal-like disease, and you can actually go further and subdivide this even further. Each of these have a very different approach to treatment and different prognosis. Having said that, uh, let's go into the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2-NU uh, status. These are proteins that are differentially expressed by cancer cells. The estrogen and progesterone receptors are intracellular proteins that bind estradiol. HER2-NU, or the human epidermal receptor, is a member of a family of receptors that live in the membrane of the cell. They're called transmembrane receptors. 20 to 30% of breast cancers have an overabundance of this protein or an amplification, depending on the test you use. And cancers that are amplified for HER2-NU have a more aggressive behavior, are more likely to recur, and often will recur earlier. All of that, though, has changed with the introduction of Herceptin, trastuzumab, and other HER2-NU targeted drugs. The treatment is now effective, prognosis is now excellent, and our approach to this disease has changed very dramatically. It's important to know that cancers can be estrogen positive and HER2-NU positive, 
or estrogen negative and HER2 new positive. So the the combination of hormones with HER2 new targeted drugs will depend on whether the cancer is estrogen positive or not. How do we test for HER2 new? There are two main techniques. The first is called IHC or immunohistochemical staining, and it's actually staining of the cells, and that is classified as zero, one two, and three, where three is considered positive. The others are zero and one are considered negative. Two is considered equivocal, and further testing is needed. The other modality to test is called fluorescent in situ hybridization, and that's either a positive or a negative, although now we're beginning to see some of those being equivocal. So if we have an equivocal IHC or an equivocal fish, additional techniques are available that can help us break down a cancer to truly, to truly get a handle on whether it's positive or not. Because if a cancer is considered HER2 new positive, we're going to talk about all of the potential drugs that we can use for that cancer. Whereas if a cancer is HER2 new negative, we're not going to go that route. Testing in early-stage breast cancer is routinely done on the breast tumor, whereas testing in metastatic disease is, should be repeated if at all possible, if there's disease that's amenable to biopsy. So in metastatic disease, whenever possible, we try to biopsy something new because 20% of the time there's a difference between the primary cancer and the metastatic disease, and it makes a difference in treatment. The hallmark of HER2-new positive disease are these drugs that target the HER2-new protein. The first on the market was Herceptin or Trastuzumab, which is a monoclonal antibody. Since Herceptin was introduced, many other drugs have come on the market, Pertusumab or Pergetta, Lapatinib or Ticurb, Noratinib, the most recent one to come on the market, um, Cadzilla, which is a conjugate of Herceptin with a chemotherapy compound called Emtanzine. So we now have a variety of compounds and how these are used, whether alone, in combination with chemotherapy or with hormone therapy, or even in combination with each other is very important. Now let's talk about early-stage breast cancer. Early-stage breast cancer is disease limited to the breast and axilla. The decision-making revolves around using a multidisciplinary team to decide on the appropriate approach. Our treatment decisions are, used, uh, are made based on tumor size, nodal status, features of the cancer such as grade, the estrogen and progesterone status, and the HER2 new status, but also patient features, the health conditions that the patient may have, and also patient choices. Metastatic breast cancer, the priorities are quite different. Uh, there we are focusing on response, control of disease. We focus a lot on toxicity, and we'll hear much about that from other speakers. Uh, but again, treatment is also based on the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new. Uh, in metastatic disease, though, our decision-making is guided by the extent of disease or the severity of disease. If a woman has bone and nodal disease only, a better prognosis, maybe different approaches, lung and liver, uh, different prognosis. And also, in metastatic disease, our decision-making is often affected by the treatment the patient has received in the past. When they had early-stage breast cancer, what treatments were they exposed to? In early-stage breast cancer, tumors as little as 5 to 6 millimeters 
in size, even node negative, HER2 new targeted therapy is recommended to be considered, and I mean to be considered. Certain patients are not appropriate for those agents if someone's elderly, if someone has a cardiac history, but the discussion about HER2 new based therapy begins based on the guidelines in cancers that are 5 to 6 millimeters or bigger. Typically, HER2 new therapy is not given alone, it's given with chemotherapy. Several regimens are available, and the choice is based on the size of the tumor, the nodal status, the patient's age, and the patient's comorbidities. Probably one that's become very commonly used for the smaller node-negative patients are a combination of Taxol given weekly for 12 weeks with Herceptin, but other combinations, Adriamycin and Cytoxin, followed by Taxol and Herceptin, Taxotere, Carboplatinum, and Herceptin, all of those are viable options depending on the patient and the disease. In all, Herceptin is given for a total of 12 months. Based on recent trial data, a trial called Affinity that many of you are aware of, chemotherapy plus Herceptin with the addition of pertusimab was shown to have slight improvement in disease outcome, but also an increase in toxicity. So the use of pertusimab today has to be individualized, and a lot of decision-making goes around that topic. With all of these agents, with all of these regimens, there has to be careful monitoring of cardiac function because these compounds can affect the heart. And now we have a drug called noratinib that can be considered uh, after Herceptin is completed for another year of drug therapy for the woman with certain types of uh, early-stage breast cancer. Now, metastatic disease. Again, <coughs> the approach depends on the time uh, to recurrence of metastatic disease, the sites of recurrence, drugs previously used, and again, repeating that very important ERPR and HER2 new testing. If disease is not life-threatening and hormone positive, we can often consider uh, hormonal drugs with Pergetta and Herceptin. If there's more significant disease, we might use chemotherapy with Herceptin and Pergetta. Or if a patient has already been exposed to those agents in the early stage setting, we might use Cadzilla in that setting. The decision on whether and when to stop chemotherapy and to just continue with the HER2 new targeted drugs, the Pergetta Herceptin alone or hormone Pergetta Herceptin, very much depends on uh, how the disease has responded, has all disease disappeared, has it stabilized, etc. There are many other options in the metastatic setting, Cadzilla, chemotherapy regimens and Herceptin, a very old one, which is the concept of Herceptin and Lapatinib, two targeted drugs given together. The reality is that the HER2 new landscape provides us a whole new world with very long-term control of metastatic disease, an increasing number of patients going into remission and staying in very strong remissions. And the future is even brighter because there continues to be research being done on vaccines and other uh, modalities. So, again, uh, this will be uh, the beginning of our discussion on this disease. And I bring it back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grana. That was an outstanding presentation. Really, thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker um, is Dr. Linda Vidat. Dr. Vidat is Chief Cancer Services, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Norwalk Hospital Partnership, 
Chief Hematology Oncology Neurohospital, Member of Breast Medicine Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Vidat is going to address how diagnostic testing provides information about risk recurrence, targeted treatment to reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence, and investigational new drugs and clinical trials. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Vidat. So let's touch on what is HER2 new positive breast cancer. We test HER2 new because HER2 new is a growth accelerator that is present on up to 25% of breast cancer cells. We can test the HER2 new receptor two ways. First, we test it with something called immunohistochemistry or IHC, and we give it a score anywhere from 0 to 3 plus. If the score is IHC 3 plus, then it is considered positive for HER2 new. If a tumor is 0 or 1 plus, it is considered negative. If the IHC is 2 plus, it is considered equivocal and a confirmatory test called the FISH test or fluorescent in situ hybridization test is done. This, mean, this measures HER2 new protein in a different way and usually gives you a definitive answer whether a tumor is HER2 new positive or not. If any test comes back HER2 new positive, it is important to have a discussion with your oncology team about whether the medicine, uh, Herceptin or Trastuzumab, would be recommended to neutralize it. There are many other predictive and prognostic tests available in oncology breast cancer today. And these are tests such as the Oncotype DX, Mammoprint, Endopredict, PAM50, Breast Cancer Index, and many more. The American Society of Clinical Oncology in their most recent guideline in April of 2016 does not recommend any of those tests uh, in, for use in patients with a HER2-new positive breast cancer, and it's a strong recommendation. So let's talk about standard treatment to reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence, as well as some new information about how to further decrease the risk. It has been well accepted since 2006 that trastuzumab for one year in the adjuvant setting reduces the risk of recurrence and death from breast cancer by at least 50%. I would say this has been the biggest advance in my lifetime, and it has literally saved millions of women uh, who've had breast cancer. There have been a number of clinical trials trying to identify what is the optimal duration of trastuzumab or Herceptin use. Um, some trials have patients getting Herceptin for nine weeks, three months, six months, one year, and two years, but it seems that any trastuzumab is helpful, but perhaps one year of therapy might be ideal. The good thing is that trastuzumab is very well tolerated, no hair loss, no effect on the blood counts, and no nausea vomiting. What it can do is reduce some of the pumping function of the heart, and if you have a compromised heart to begin with, it can make it worse. Luckily, that happens only about 4% of the time, and if it does happen, it is almost always reversible. However, what that has done is that it has encouraged many clinical trials to try to develop regimens that have less effect on the heart. So we've seen a trend in breast cancer uh, oncology uh, towards what I would call de-escalation of treatments. So it is not unusual to see a patient who have tumors up to three centimeters with negative lymph nodes to get only one chemotherapy drug, Taxol in particular, with Herceptin weekly for 12 weeks and then continue the Herceptin for a year. The survival is about 98% of those patients who were enrolled in the original trials testing this regimen at more than five years of follow-up. There are other regimens which have limited cardiac side effects, and there are ones that don't include a very popular drug called adriamycin. There is some debate in the breast cancer community about whether adriamycin needs to be included, but that is something you should discuss with your healthcare team so it can be tailored to you or someone you care about who's going through this decision process right now. The other option in the treatment of HER2-new positive breast cancer is whether one should receive a drug called pertuzumab or progetta. 
pertuzumab also targets the HER2 new growth accelerator on the target of a breast cancer cell, but in a very different way. So when pertuzumab came on the scene about eight years ago, everyone was pretty excited because when we gave it with Herceptin or other chemotherapy to women who had a lump of cancer, you could still see it, which was in the breast, it got rid of it completely in more women who got the pertuzumab added to their regimen. So we had direct evidence that it was more effective in the short term, specifically shrinking the tumor, than Herceptin alone. That led to a big trial called Affinity Trial that just gave us some results at the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meetings this past June. In that trial, women with HER2 new positive breast cancer that was node negative or node positive got standard chemo and Herceptin, and then a coin was flipped where half got pertuzumab for one year and the other half didn't. The results showed that the addition of pertuzumab resulted in less tumor coming back, coming, coming back in women that got it, but only improved the relapse rate by 1.7% at a median follow-up of almost four years. When they took a closer look at the data, they saw that there was no advantage for pertuzumab in women who had a node-negative HER2 new positive breast cancer, but a 3.2% advantage in terms of decreased risk of relapse in those with a node-positive HER2 new positive breast cancer. So in summary, I tend to recommend pertuzumab for my node-positive breast cancer patients, but haven't routinely recommended it for my node-negative HER2 new positive breast cancer patients. Of course, this would be something you would need to discuss with your healthcare provider or your medical team uh, if you're struggling with this decision now. So let's talk about strategies to further decrease the risk of an invasive HER2 new positive breast cancer from recurring. As I mentioned in the beginning of the session, a standard duration of fortrestuzumab and a HER2 new positive breast cancer is one year. A clinical trial called the HERA trial looked at one year versus two years of trastuzumab and found no additional advantage for two years over one year. So a clinical trial called the Extinet trial looked at using another HER2 new targeted agent after completion of one year of Herceptin and found an advantage in terms of less relapses. So in that clinical trial, over 2,800 women who had a stage 1 to 3 uh, HER2 new positive breast cancer were randomized to one year of a drug uh, with a pill called Neratinib or Neralix versus placebo. These patients had all completed what was considered standard treatment, which included chemotherapy and one year of Herceptin. The difference in relapse was 2.3% between the groups in favor of the patients who took the Neratinib. When the researchers went back and double-checked that everyone was HER2 new positive in the trial, it turns out that not everyone was HER2 new positive that was enrolled in that trial. Um, and that means that if they were HER2 new negative, then HER2 targeted therapy wouldn't make a difference at all. So when they went back and looked at all the tumors and confirmed their HER2 new centrally by you know one group of pathologists, it turns out that the difference uh, and benefit to neratinib was greater in for uh, in the patients enrolled in that trial, and the difference was actually seven percent in favor of the neratinib arm. So that demonstrates that um, neratinib, after one year of um, Herceptin, can improve outcome and decrease the relapse rate. Neratinib can cause has some side effects and can cause some diarrhea but the diarrhea is certainly easily managed uh, with taking prophylactic um, antidiarrheal medication. What is interesting is when that original Extinet trial was done, uh, there was no uh, prophylactic antidiarrheal regimens put in that trial, so the 
diarrhea regimen is on the high side, but with additional research and with um, recognizing that this is a side effect, um, strategies have been put in place to reduce the diarrhea rate in the in the range of what we see with many of the other drugs that we use. So for patients, so for patients who have metastatic disease. Um, which thankfully aren't as many as they used to be because we have such effective therapy um, in the adjuvant setting. Um, there are many drugs that we use uh, in order to keep them living uh, for as long as possible and as well as possible. When, patient ha when a patient who has a HER2 new positive breast cancer uh, that has spread, uh, we use drugs such as Herceptin, Pertuzumab, Ketsyla, which is TDM1, and lapatinib. And these are all considered standard drugs. Um, the order in which they're given um, is up to uh, a shared decision-making between the patient and the healthcare team. Um, there are some new drugs, which are looking pretty exciting right now. Um, there is some new data on a drug called abemacyclib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor combined with trastuzumab, which was just presented at the European Society of Medical Oncology uh, last month. And it looks like it has a very high response rate with a very good side effect profile uh, in patients who've had a lot of prior treatment. So we are looking forward to getting more information uh, on that combination in bigger trials. Abemacyclib was just approved by the FDA in the U.S. Um, within the past month. Interestingly, the major side effect for the abemacyclib is diarrhea also. And there are strategies uh, in place um, to prevent it with taking drugs like Lamodium and Lamoto. Another drug, uh, which is uh, very exciting, is a new antibody drug conjugate, which is made by Daiichi Sankyo, which just received a fast-track designation uh, by the US FDA. Uh, the number on the drug, it doesn't even have a name yet, is called DS8201. And an antibody drug conjugate is a very interesting uh, molecule. So what it is is a genetically engineered molecule that targets HER2 nu, but what it does is it tar puts a payload on it. So there you have basically this antibody targeting directly your cancer cell and delivering the chemotherapy directly to the cancer cell. The goal of this is that you have more tumor shrinkage and you have less side effects because the chemotherapy is going directly to the cancer cell. Uh, there are other drugs which are also in development. Uh, there is a new and improved version of Herceptin, perhaps, called Margituximab, made by a company called Macrogenics. And there's a clinical trial on, going on right now looking at Taxol and Margituximab versus Taxol and Herceptin. So as you can see, there's been a lot of uh, positive movement uh, in her to new positive breast cancer, both in the primary disease setting as well as in for tumors that have spread. And um, we are really um, looking towards a time when I do believe that we will not have relapse disease for patients with HER2-positive breast cancer because our therapies are getting so effective. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Vidat. That was really um, excellent, very outstanding, and um, thank you for that wonderful presentation. And our next uh, speaker um, is Dr. Sarah Talani, and Dr. Talani is Associate Director, Clinical Research, Breast Oncology, Susan F. Smith Center for Women's Cancers, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Talani is going to address the role of clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, 
and managing treatment side effects. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Talani. Uh, thanks so much. Um, so I thought I'd start off with talking about what clinical trials are, what the different types of clinical trials are, and then why or why not um, trials may make sense uh, for you along the way. So clinical trials are really research studies that are designed to answer questions about new ways to treat cancer. There are different types of clinical trials that exist, which I think can sometimes be confusing because trials can be in different phases. Um, so you may have heard um, of phase one versus phase two and phase three trials, and I thought it'd be nice to touch upon what the differences are between those types of studies. So a phase one trial is really trying to determine a dose of a new drug, and so oftentimes these are drugs that may have never been given to people before um, or have never been given in a particular combination before. And so it's really trying to determine how best to give these agents, um, whether by themselves or together, what the proper dose is and what the side effects are. And so the way these studies work is they usually enroll small cohorts of patients at, at a particular dose level, look at how patients do with that dose, and if it seems like people are doing well and side effects are reasonable, then they often escalate the dose and enroll a different cohort of patients, and they do this until they reach the correct dose. Um, these trials can be a little bit more involved because they can involve um, checking what we call pharmacokinetic blood draws, so trying to look at drug levels. And so they can often require more visits than would traditionally be on other types of clinical trials or even with standard therapy. There are also phase two trials, which are trials that are really trying to look at how efficacious a particular treatment program is. And so usually this is taking a dose level that's already been established in a previous phase one trial, and it's really enrolling a larger group of patients to better understand how the response is in that group. And if a drug looks really promising in a phase two trial, then it will often move on to a phase three trial where really it's comparing what this new drug is or this new combination of drugs is to the standard of care. And then it's really trying to say, hey, is this new combination just as good as what the standard treatment is or even better um, in, a, in order to allow this particular regimen to get potentially approved and become a standard treatment that can be available to people. So as you can see, it's a, a lot of steps that are involved in developing a new drug and really starting off with phase one testing, trying to determine a dose and looking at safety profiles, moving on to phase two to look at the efficacy of that regimen, and then moving to phase three to see if that regimen is actually potentially better than the standard of care to finally make this new treatment uh, available to people as a possible standard treatment. And so this is you know, unfortunately can take years for drugs to become available. And I think that really turns to the question is of why should one do a clinical trial? And I think well, you really have to weigh the pros and cons of, of participating in a trial. I think some of the pros of doing a trial are if a new treatment is proven to work and you happen to be getting it through a clinical trial, you may be one of the first people that's able to benefit from treatment. I think also it can expand the number of treatment options that you have. And so, you know, there's certainly several very good standard treatment options that are available, but it's always nice to be able to have other options on top of those standard treatment options, and this could contribute to that. 
And I think certainly there's also a chance to help other people uh, by participating in trials and eventually allowing us to improve in providing better care to patients in the future. I think there are certain downsides, though, at the same time. And, you know, some of the new treatments, we don't know what all their side effects are. And so we may not be able to anticipate what all of them are. Um, and, and I think this is one of the downsides to participating in a trial, particularly in an early phase setting uh, where not a lot of patients have yet been treated with a particular regimen. I think one of the things we touched upon earlier is that the phase one trials can often be more involved and they can involve more time coming into the clinic more often, more blood draws. And so that is a downside, I think, because obviously it takes away time from you know your normal life. And I think finally, even if we find that a new treatment has benefits, it doesn't always work in all the patients it's tried in. And so, you know, participating in a clinical trial doesn't necessarily mean it is going to, to always work. I think there's certainly also lots of other questions that come about um, when thinking about clinical trials that I often get asked. One common question I get is, how will you know if the drug is actually working when you're on a clinical trial? Um, in some particular cases, imaging is done on regular routine intervals, uh, particularly in patients who have metastatic disease to see if the treatment is working. Um, in patients who have completed surgery and getting treatment really to prevent a recurrence, um, you know, there really isn't a way that one can monitor um, whether or not the treatment is working or not at this time. Another question I often get asked is, will insurance pay for participating in a clinical trial and how does that actually work? You know, generally most insurance companies do pay for patients to participate in research. The way it works is things that are normally done to take care of people is billed to insurance, but things that are done for research purposes, such as potentially research blood draws, and those things need to be paid for by research, and certainly the experimental medication uh, does need to be provided uh, at no charge and is usually provided by the, the drug companies that are making those agents. So, you know, I think clinical trials really represent a unique way to get access to new and exciting drugs um, and get access quickly, particularly given, you know, the long timelines that, that exist for getting drugs approved and that there are lots of new, really exciting targeted therapies that exist, some of which um, are currently in clinical trials. I think Dr. Vidot did a really nice job reviewing what some of those agents were, including CDK4-6 inhibitors, some new drug antibody conjugates, there's also some new targeted drugs that specifically target HER2. Uh, one example of that is a drug called ticatinib, uh, which is also known as ONT380, which is an oral pill that targets specifically the HER2 receptor in a very potent way, which is also um, currently in clinical trials. And I think one sort of hot area of development is certainly immunotherapy as well, and where you know there are drugs that are being used to try to harness the body's own immune system to target the cancer. And there are several new antibodies that have been developed and that are being studied in combination with her two targeted drugs that seem quite exciting. And so, uh, you know, I think there's a whole plethora of, of great treatments that are available, not again, just standardly, but also through clinical trials. I think the other area that I wanted to touch upon was um, treatment side effects and, and sort of how we manage those. You know, certainly with um, 
a lot of the, the newer drugs, there are newer toxicities that we are seeing. You know, Dr. Vidot again touched upon um, some of the toxicities that we've seen with, for example, a drug like neratinib, um, which does have um, some toxicities with diarrhea. Um, and as she mentioned, using um, drugs like Imodium to prevent onset of diarrhea has been quite effective with that agent. There's also some newer um, strategies that are being used to try to prevent diarrhea that have specifically been studied with neratinib. There's an oral steroid that has been studied called budesonide that has also worked quite well when being given in combination with Imodium. There's also another drug called cholestopol, which has also been studied um, to prevent diarrhea with neratinib that also seems to be quite effective. Um, so I think there's lots of good strategies that are now in place. I think another um, toxicity that we do see with HER2-directed therapies is heart toxicity. And so, you know, drugs like Herceptin are associated with a small risk of developing a toxicity where the heart muscle can't contract as well as it normally would. And then this can result in congestive heart failure. Um, usually when patients are getting um, Herceptin after having had surgery, and usually they get Herceptin for a year, we do routinely monitor heart function, um, getting echocardiograms on a regular basis. That way, if there were to be any changes in the heart function, our goal is to catch those changes early. And usually we found that if you hold the Herceptin and allow for the heart function to rebound, um, then oftentimes patients can get exposed to Herceptin. And again, there are also medications that can be given, um, sometimes beta blockers and ACE inhibitors that can help the heart function recover better. And now there are even specialists, cardio-oncologists, who really we work with quite closely um, if patients do develop complications uh, with heart toxicity from HER2-directed treatments. And so I think we've gotten much better about managing this and helping heart function recover uh, to a better level. So again, I think while there are certain toxicities that we do see from these treatments, we've gotten better and better about trying to manage them, which makes it, um, which allows us to, to administer treatments much more effectively. So thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Delaney. That was really an outstanding presentation, um, a lot of good information, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Matro. Dr. Matro is physician at the Rena Rowan Breast Can Center, Abramson Cancer Center, assistant professor of clinical medicine, division of hematology, oncology, Perelman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. And um, Thank you, Carolyn. Dr. Thanks so much. Uh, oh. Okay. And Dr. Mitchell will be addressing uh, communicating with the healthcare team, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. And it's my pleasure now to turn it over to Dr. Uh, Metro. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, so first, uh, I'm going to talk about communicating with your healthcare team, and there's several important things to consider here. Uh, first, you're going to want to identify who is part of your team. So certainly you have your uh, your oncologist, maybe you have a surgeon and a radiation oncologist, uh, but does that does your doctor also work with a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant? Uh, will you be communicating with a, a triage nurse or a nurse on the phone? Uh, will you be com communicating also with your doctor's administrative assistant or secretary? Uh, you should feel comfortable communicating with these surrogates who work with your doctor if you aren't able to, to reach your doctor directly. 
then you want to know how can you communicate with your team? How can you reach them? Do, uh, will you uh, certainly you'll be you'll be calling, uh, and if you call the office, who will you be speaking with? Will you reach uh, a phone nurse? Will you talk to the secretary? Will you reach a telephone operator? Uh, does your doctor or team use email? Uh, many providers don't give out their emails, uh, email addresses mainly because of concerns that it's not secure or compliant with the Health uh, Information uh, and Portability and Accountability Act. Uh, so many uh, healthcare systems are now using a web portal, uh, so uh, an on, uh, online secure web portal that allows you to send secure private messages to your healthcare team directly. Uh, these portals are also often a central place that you can go to request medication refills. You can check your appointments or your schedule. Uh, you can even view your test results. Uh, and then what kinds of things should you be communicating about? Uh, the simple answer is, when in doubt, reach out. Nothing is too small, and, and as a physician, I'd rather be able to give you very quick reassurance or a simple answer than have you worrying or wondering if you should even bother to, to call the office. For urgent issues or things that you're uh, most concerned with, calling the office is always preferred. Uh, emails or messages that are sent through the portal aren't always checked as regularly as phone calls are. Uh, as a as a your physician, I would want to know about any unexpected or unusual side effects that you might be having trouble with uh, things such as uncontrolled nausea, uh, diarrhea, pain. Uh, if you have any fevers, we certainly want to know about that, uh, especially with uh, some of these HER2 directed therapies that, as as we've mentioned, can cause diarrhea. We may give you medications to take at home to help uh, minimize the diarrhea, but if it's if it's still uh, a problem despite those medications, then we want to know about that. Uh, when should you communicate? Uh, again, simply whenever you have a question or concern or unsure. Uh, we'd rather we'd rather you uh, call than than be the than be stewing. Uh, so most uh, doctors will have. Uh, You'll be able to, to reach during regular business hours. Uh, that's, that's generally the best time to call. Uh, there's a good chance that your team can offer immediate assistance. For example, you might be able to come in that day for IV fluids or a blood transfusion or even a same-day evaluation by a nurse or the doctor if you have something uh, that you're concerned about. You'll also want to confirm with your team what the after-hours call options are. Is there is there a separate number to call, or do you call just the regular number that you normally would during the day? Uh, most doctors' offices do have an after-hours call service, so there's someone available to help you 24 hours a day. But you might not get you might get somebody who's covering for your doctor and not necessarily the doctor who knows your case. So there's some important things that you should have uh, on hand when you call after hours, things like if you're getting chemotherapy, what kind of medication are you getting, and when your last treatment was. And in general, after hours calls should should be reserved for urgent or uncontrolled symptoms or fevers, things that, things that you're, you're really concerned about. And then next I'm going to talk about some key questions that's important to ask your healthcare team. Uh, those first few visits with each of your specialists are, are the most important visits. Those are where you're going to get most of the information about what your recurrence risk is and what your treatment options are. 
so, for example, do you need chemotherapy? Do you need surgery? Are you a candidate for a lumpectomy or do you need a mastectomy? Uh, will you need radiation and how long will the radiation take? Uh, what, are, what are the alternatives to these options that are being presented? Are there things that could safely be left out or things that, that might be added uh, in addition to, to some of the standard treatments? Are there clinical trials that you're eligible for at, at each point during your treatment? And you'll want to know what the risks are. There, as we've mentioned, there's, uh, there's short-term and potentially long-term side effects. So, so the, the short-term risks of uh, going through chemotherapy and surgery and radiation. Uh, will you have, uh, how long will you be in the hospital for your surgery? Uh, will you have to stay overnight? Will you have drains when you leave? Uh, What's the recovery period from the surgery, and then from for the chemotherapy or uh, medication? If you're going to, if you are a candidate or recommended to have any medication, how is that going to be given? Will you need a port, uh, or will it just be given through an IV? Uh, how are the? What are the expected side effects? Will your blood counts fall? Uh, uh, and, and how does the team monitor for that? And what's the order in which these things will happen? Uh, is surgery first or is chemotherapy first? If you have a stage four breast cancer where the mainstay of treatment generally is medication, uh, you'll want to ask about the role of surgery and radiation. Are those even options for you? Uh, you'll want to ask what to expect when you come to see the doctor. For example, when you come and see a medical oncologist for chemotherapy. Will you see the doctor each time you have an infusion? Uh, will you see a nurse? Will you have labs checked? Uh, can you bring somebody with you? Uh, will you be able to drive home? Or should you have somebody to who, who makes sure that you that you can get home safely? Uh, some of these medications, we some of the chemotherapy drugs we give. Medications like Benadryl that might make you a little sleepy to prevent allergic reactions, and so it, it's often helpful to have somebody come with you. Uh, and even simple things like can I can you eat before your chemotherapy? Uh, and many of these key questions uh, have can address quality of life concerns. So I, I started to get into things like side effects. What what are some of the side effects that you might experience from your chemo? Uh, most commonly, we, think, we see things like fatigue uh, with many of the chemotherapy drugs or some of the chemotherapy drugs that we use with Herceptin and some of the other HER2-specific medicines. We see things like neuropathy. Uh, how is that going to impact your quality of life if you're somebody especially who uh, relies on fine hand motor fine uh, motor movements? Are you a musician or do you type on the computer a lot for your job? Uh, with some of the the medications, uh, the chemotherapy and some of the hormone-based medicines we we give, uh, we see things like decreased libido that can certainly impact your quality of life. And these are all things that you're going to want to know about and prepare for. And then with the HER2-specific uh, toxicities and side effects, again, we've mentioned the diarrhea and the, the cardiac or the heart dysfunction. Uh, so what are the signs and symptoms that you should be looking out for for a heart dysfunction? Uh, things like shortness of breath or leg swelling. Uh, you'll want to know how you'll be monitored and what things your doctor has to offer to minimize these side effects. 
as, as has been mentioned before, we, we will often give medications to prevent diarrhea, uh, but, you know, if that's not, if what you have is not enough, we, we have other things generally that we can add. Uh, can you come in for extra IV fluids if you have nausea and are having trouble keeping hydrated? Those are all important things about day-to-day -day quality of life. And one very important question that many women have is whether you'll be able to continue to work while you're getting your treatment. Uh, or should you take a leave of absence? Uh, depending on the kind of chemotherapy or the type of surgery that you've been recommended and what kind of job you have, continuing to work uh, is certainly possible and potentially a really beneficial thing for, for mental and emotional health. Uh, patients who have really uh, active jobs, such as uh, you know elementary school teachers or kindergarten teachers where they have to be on and, and active, uh, many of many of those women will will choose to take a leave of absence just because of the fatigue that they may experience, and also the the risk of being around uh, children who who might be sick with with other infections that they could catch. Uh, but that's a really important question to talk with your your healthcare team about. Uh, and and uh, if you can't work full time, can you work part time? Uh, and filling out any appropriate paperwork that that your job uh, might might offer uh, to make sure that your job is safe during uh, treatment that would would be temporary. Uh, you'll want to know, can you exercise during treatment uh, or do other activities that you enjoy uh, with the, the concern about the heart dysfunction? Uh, you'll certainly want to talk to your doctor about whether or not it's safe to continue to do the things that you enjoy doing. Uh, and then, and for women who have uh, stage four cancer, it's important to ask: How is the medication going to make you feel? How is this chemotherapy uh, going to make me feel? Am I going to feel better so that I can enjoy the time that I have and enjoy the time that I have with my family and and continue to do the things that I love to do as long as possible? And then. Any other questions that might might pertain to your individual situation? Really, nothing is off the table, and most of us, uh, as as providers and doctors, really encourage all sorts of questions because we want you to feel comfortable going through the treatment. Well, that, that's terrific, Dr. Nacho, and I have to say that that your this is a wonderful presentation, and particularly the the uh, the comment that really your physicians do want to hear, and this is coming from the, the physician, they do want to hear about your concerns and questions, and so just be aware of that. We're going to soon be asking questions that are, all of you will be able to ask questions during the call, but that's just a good um, good entree to that. And our next speaker, before we take questions, is Ms. Victoria Puzo. Ms. Puzo is an oncology social worker. She's an online support group program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Puzo is going to present on the uh, free psychosocial programs and support services at Cancer Care Office, as well as the role of support groups. It's now my pleasure to turn the program over to my colleague, Ms. Puzo. Worker here at Cancer Care. Um, I work with many people diagnosed with breast cancer, their loved your treatment and care and all of the different facets that come along with that. And I'd like to just take a moment to speak about the importance of creating a support network as part of your care and how cancer care can potentially be a part of your support. Um, cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. 
We provide um, individual counseling um, in person and in the New York area as well as over the phone nationally. We have support groups which are also provided in person and over the phone. And we also have our online support groups which are offered nationally and internationally. So we have people from all over the world that join our online support groups to talk to other people who are in similar situations. Um, our programs are also include educational programs such as our teleconference today. Um, we can provide assistance with navigating the healthcare system and sometimes some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are free of charge. Our oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and loved ones. We're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. Um, adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all of the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the process. Um, as many of you likely already know, cancer affects the whole person and their entire family and support group. Um, and asking for help as a patient or a caregiver or a loved one or by joining a support group um, is a real strength that can help you feel less alone. Um, it can be a very isolating thing to go through, so I think connecting with someone, either a social worker or um, a peer through a support group is a way to, to just feel more connected and talk to other people who are in a similar situation that can really um, provide some understanding and support. Um, individual counseling is a great way to provide a space that's just yours to voice your concerns and navigate any of the issues um, that come along with being in treatment and all of the changes that happen in your life because of that. Um, all of these connections just help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer and their loved ones experience. Um, it's important to feel um, emotionally supported and, and with that you'll be able to better cope with your diagnosis and the treatment. Um, some of those things can include just learning new coping mechanisms or, you know, hearing what other people are doing to um, enhance their care. Um, at this time, Cancer Care does offer an online support group for people diagnosed with breast cancer. We have one for stages one through three and one for metastatic breast cancer, um, and that's available on cancercare.org. Um, we also provide both patient and caregiver groups face-to-face -face in the New York area, over the phone nationally, and um, as I mentioned, the online groups are available um, nationally and internationally. Um, if you're interested in any of these services that I've talked about, um, please feel free to call our HOPE line. The phone number is 1-800-813-4673. Or visit our website, cancercare.org. Our website is very comprehensive. You can find a lot of information, not only on the support that I talked about, but also for other um, programs, um, information about your diagnosis, treatment, and um, tips on coping. So um, definitely take a look at that if you're interested in any of those kinds of topics. And I'll turn it back over to Carolyn so we can get some Q&A from our listeners. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Puzo. That was wonderful. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Ayala to explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take, um, so please bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take a few questions before we conclude the call. And, um, and I will also, for those of you who don't get to ask a question, we will, I will give you guidelines on how to get those questions answered. So stay tuned. Um, Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's an excellent, excellent seminar. Thank you. Uh, I'm 11-year breast cancer survivor, HER2 positive, double negative. I did have azomycin, taxol, cytoxin, um, and I'm sorry, azomycin, cytoxin, taxol, receptin. My two questions were number one. The heart toxicities, I did have four mugus scans. I'd like to know for the future for toxicities from someone who had adromycin and Herceptin 11 years ago. I'm told everything is negative, but I want to know for the future toxicities. And number two, clinical trials. If, if I could get into one, if someone likes to have uh, my blood or also for my frozen slides for future research for someone who had HER2 and, of course, went to all the treatment. Thank you. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for your uh, questions and your comments. And I'm going to ask if Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Tulaney, if you could uh, begin by addressing those questions, and um, that would be very helpful. Thanks. Sure. Um, so, congratulations on on doing so well, being so far out. Um, so, you know, I think certainly bring up a very important point, which is the risks of heart toxicity from having gotten adriamycin, which is an anthracycline-type chemotherapy, which by itself has some risk of heart toxicity, and then also getting that, you know, followed sequentially with um, Herceptin, which also itself has heart toxicity. You know, in the studies that were done in which patients got that ACTH regimen that you um, received, the rates of heart toxicity were about 6%, um, you know, so certainly much higher than patients who were not getting adriamycin followed by the Herceptin. So when they did another trial where they looked at patients who got what we call the TCH regimen, um, so that's getting docetaxel with carboplatin and Herceptin, the rates of heart toxicity were substantially lower. So suggesting, you know, getting the anthracycline, the adriamycin drug, does enhance rates of heart toxicity. And so that's why during therapy people do get heart monitoring. Um, usually Herceptin-based heart toxicity can often be reversible. Heart toxicity due to adriamycin is oftentimes not reversible. The large majority of heart toxicity does seem to occur with concurrent administration of trastuzumab, so most of heart toxicity will show up during that first year, but there can be some late heart toxicity that can occur, particularly from the adriamycin more so than from the Herceptin. Um, but given how far out you are, that seems pretty low in terms of likelihood, and at this time there isn't any routine heart monitoring that is recommended uh, for, for you now. You know, in terms of um, clinical research, that's very nice of you to, to think about uh, giving back. Um, you know, there are... Um, 
people who are interested in, in looking at tumors and, you know, for example, tumor tissue and sequencing them. And there is this person, Nick Wagley, at the Broad Institute who has this uh, posting on social media where he has a way to submit cancer samples to him from across the country um, and has been doing sequencing on these tumors um, to help us better understand the landscape of, of genomic changes in tumors. So there's certainly ways to contribute even when you are so far out, so that's nice to think about. Well, thank you so much. And um, we have another question from one of our online participants, um, and it's actually for Dr. Metro. It's, um, she, uh, the discussion regarding communicating with the healthcare team was wonderful, but unfortunately I did not receive this prior to my treatment. I completed chemo and surgery and, about, and I'm about to begin radiation. How can we get this information out to, to new HER2 patients so they don't lose out like I did? And I just actually want to comment before Dr. Metro says, comments as well, that actually that is one of the reasons we do programs like this is to get this information out to all of you, but we do hear your concern, and it's a wonderful question in terms of how do we continue to build on this information. So, Dr. Maitre, if you have thoughts about this, um, please comment, um, because yeah. obviously... <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and, and you know, organizations like like this that that do these these conferences and have information online are a great resource but unfortunately not every woman knows knows about them or knows to think about them uh i think several healthcare uh institutions are taking steps to improve some of the information that that they're giving for example doing chemotherapy teaching sessions before anybody actually uh gives the chemotherapy um you know, certainly word of mouth helps, uh, but but mainly it's 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 outreach like like what we're doing here and what we're seeing here. Thank you so much, and and we are um, this program actually I should tell you all will be available on our website as a as a replay as a podcast actually um, probably within I would say 24 hours. Um, and so then you can actually share with others as well. And you can listen to it again yourselves as well. And I have another question, um, which is for Dr. Um, Grana. Um, and that question is, what do you think of the breast MRI test in terms of its utility for um, uh, uh, for HER2-positive breast cancer or in general? I don't know that MRI of the breast is designated for HER2-new-positive. It's basically a test that is used in women in probably two major scenarios. The first is at the time of initial surgery to make a decision as to whether a lumpectomy is appropriate or whether there's more disease in the breast that may be uh, something that needs more surgery. It's also often used in women who are getting chemotherapy first or preoperative or neoadjuvant chemotherapy to get a better assessment of the extent of disease in the breast. So it's used in the setting of decision-making for surgery. The other big group of patients where MRI of the breast is useful is in the high-risk woman uh, where we are using it as an enhancement to mammography. There are two groups. One is the woman who has benign breast disease but may have a family history, may have had biopsies. Those women may qualify if their risk is high enough. And then all of the mutation-positive women who choose not to have surgery but choose to be screened, whether it's BRCA1, BRCA2, PALB2, CHECK2, those are women where MRI is added to mammography yearly as a screening tool. Excellent. And um, 
one uh, one late breaking question, actually, um, and I'm going to uh, give this question to Dr. Um, Tulaney. It has to do with side effects. Um, what is the latest findings on lymphedema, which I know is an issue for many um, callers on the call? So, Dr. Tulaney, if you could just address this in a general way, that would be helpful. Sure. So, you know, lymphedema is a complication that can arise oftentimes from having had um, an axillary dissection at the time of surgery um, and sometimes um, from getting radiation uh, to the axilla. Um, certainly that can be exacerbated um, sometimes if people have had infections or other things that may um, make that the drainage in that arm worse. Um, and so, you know, unfortunately it is a complication that, that can occur from treatment. And there are lots of strategies that are used to try and control the lymphedema you know, unfortunately, we don't have ways that completely get rid of it, um, but certainly there are lots of strategies that are used for managing it. Um, so some of those include using compression garments, um, so using, for example, compression sleeves, um, compression gloves. Um, there's often also techniques um, that are used for massage to sort of manually drain um, the area. I will often refer my patients to a physical therapist who specializes in lymphedema treatment because they are excellent at helping with massage techniques, uh, teaching patients how to manage it, and sometimes they'll even give great techniques for wrapping um, the arm um, to help, again, shift fluid um, out from the arm and, and get drained better. Um, there are also newer sort of uh, devices that allow for pneumatic compression of the area and that can also help with drainage. So usually I think the best step is seeing a lymphedema specialist who can really be excellent at, at helping um, with management. Thank you. And one last question. Actually, that's it. Our final question for Dr. Grana. Um, is Famara beneficial after chemo and radiation? Is Famara beneficial? Uh, it depends on the woman and the p cancer. So if a cancer is estrogen receptor positive, whether it is HER2 nu positive or HER2 nu negative, then hormonal therapy should be considered for the hormone positive. Famara, Arimidex, Aromacin are called aromatase inhibitors, and they're appropriate for women that are postmenopausal. Either they were not having periods when they were diagnosed or they went into a chemotherapy-induced menopause and your physician is absolutely comfortable that this is a permanent menopause. They've watched your hormone levels. But in the postmenopausal hormone-positive population, Femara and other aromatase inhibitors are perfectly great drugs that have tremendous activity and they're used whether you're her 2 new positive or negative. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been outstanding. You can't hear us all applauding you, but you are just a wonderful team. I can't thank you enough. I think everyone would love to have you in their pocket when they're seeing their healthcare team. Please remember about what was discussed today and also listen to the replays and all of that. And I do want to, in concluding the call today, first of all, I, did, I know there are more questions in queue, so I want to let you know how you can get some of your questions answered. And of course, the best source of getting your questions answered is, of course, your own healthcare team because they know everything about you, of course. They have your records and everything. However, um, some, I know some of you like to have some additional information, like a program like this or other ways of getting information, so you can ask more informed questions. And so for those of you, I often recommend that you contact the National Cancer Institute. And the National Cancer Institute has a, a, a number you can call, 1-800-422-6237. 
And actually that number will be sent to all of you when you get the evaluation form, these resources. But they also have a live chat feature, which is really nice. You can go to their website at www.cancer.gov. And again, you'll be getting all this information. And they have a little want to help now, a live chat, and you can actually post your question. And the information specialist will then try to garner up all the information and put it together for you so that you can ask, you know, you can get that information to help you when you see your healthcare team or in considering more information about your particular question. And that, that particular live chat is helpful both to people in the U.S. and internationally as well. So that's a, a wonderful uh, approach to have. If some of you would like to have or take advantage of Cancer Care's practical services, financial assistance, counseling services, support groups, talking to one of our oncology social workers, you would simply call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673, or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, all this information and all of the resources will be sent to all of you um, very shortly um, in terms of your when you get the evaluation form. <clears throat> and as we're about to conclude the program, um, we do not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with HER2 positive breast cancer or in dealing with cancer in general. We want you to now know that you have resources at your disposal, really at your fingertips, and you can call. It's free, and it's not just cancer care. We give you lots of other resources as well. But certainly you can call or email any one of us, visit our websites, pose your question, and we're here to help you. And that's probably an important thing that you should all take away um, from this program today. Um, and, of course, you have your healthcare team as well. I want to remind you all that we have a very interesting program coming up actually next week, Mind-Body Techniques to Cope with the Stresses of Cancer. It's on Wednesday, November 15th. It's from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And many of you may have registered already, but in case you haven't, it, it can be very helpful to many of you on the call today. So, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.